All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Natureversity podcast. Today, I have with me Jessica Gilzo, and she is from the Austin Nature and Science Center, who I have been a big fan of for many, many years. And Jessica, I just want to say thank you so much for being here, and tell us about yourself. Who are you? Yes, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Jessica Gilzo. I am the Nature-Based Programs Manager for uh, the Austin Parks and Recreation Department, uh, which means I manage three facilities, the Austin Nature and Science Center, the Beverly S. Shetfield Education Center, which has a small museum, the Splash Exhibit, and Camacho Activity Center. So basically, I'm in charge of uh, managing the facilities that do nature programming and outdoor adventure activities. Well, that is perfect, because we were wondering, you know, uh, City of Austin is just so big, and the ANSC, the Austin Nature and Science Center, it's so big, and we were wondering, who are they going to send us? So I think we got the perfect person with having you on, because our goal here is to, once again, just let families and anyone interested in nature know what opportunities are out there for folks to either volunteer. I know there's an organization here in Austin and across Texas known as the Central, or Texas Master Naturalist, and are there opportunities for them to come and volunteer with y'all there to do inventorying or anything like that? Yeah, um, definitely people can come and volunteer either as a part of, um, we have the Capital Area Master Naturalists that we work with quite a lot, um, or they can just come to the Nature Center and sign up to volunteer. We have lots of opportunities, everything from the Naturalist Workshop uh, trade counter where kids bring in things from nature and they get to sit down with a naturalist and learn about the the um, item that they've brought in and then they can earn points for their curiosity yeah. or they can earn points for their knowledge and then they can bank them or they can trade them out for another natural item there um, or we can have people who volunteer to help with our um, with our landscaping you know uh, we're constantly doing things around the site to make sure that it's ready for visitors. And we have 15 acres and we have one landscape technician. Wow. Um, so you need some help. Yeah. So it's yeah. always nice to have volunteers to help with that. Um, also, we are working on having more docent programs so that on the weekends we have, you know, volunteers who are trained to lead activities and programs around the site for families, like tours around the animals or, um, you know, providing extra information at the dino pit. Or maybe just even helping people spot different things in the pond. Yeah. So is ANSC, is it a nonprofit? How does it work? Yeah. So it's actually a part of the Austin Parks and Recreation Department. Um, it when did is, it get started? Uh, yeah, it started, well, it's kind of a long history. It started Let's in 1959. It. Um, the... Uh, first director of the Parks and Recreation Department is uh, Beverly Shetfield. Um, and he uh, wanted to have more nature in our, um, in our, uh, in our uh, city, in the Parks Department. So what he did is he tasked one of his colleagues to actually um, come out and um, start up some nature programming. And at the time, they actually did that over at Deep Eddy. So they actually had a little garage apartment over by Deep Eddy, and that's how they got started. They started no, Deep Eddy the pool. Yeah, Deep Eddy the so pool. So they were just letting kids get in that pool? Then. Yeah, I don't know if they were letting kids get in the pool, but I know that they were actually, they had like a little garage apartment near the pool, and they yeah. were actually doing programming out of that that area. And do you know what that programming looked like? Yeah, so a lot of the programming was actually... Um, was actually more focused on 
specific uh, science-based. So they actually had professors coming from universities uh, around the area and, and who were doing more academic-focused things using very specific scientific names for the wildlife and the plants. And they just really, and they also partnered with the Travis Autobahn Society, oh, yeah. the Junior League, and um, some other partners to actually lead some of the programs because they really wanted to make sure that part of the Parks Department wasn't just about, you know, the recreation and like going to a playground or playing sports. They wanted to make sure they incorporated that part of nature and they wanted to also bring in, you know, some some experts. Yeah. And so <clears throat> I know things uh, have changed quite a bit uh, when you look back at old school what I would call environmental education. Um, I've got some books, you know, over here on to my left of this big shelf. And some of those books are from the, you know, 70s and the 80s. And I got a few from the 90s. But do you think that, I mean, has things drastically changed in how education for outdoor, you know, adventures for children uh, since back then? Like, have they just, because to me they have. Because when I look at those books and I thumb through them versus what I'm looking at today, everything today is like, just saturate yourself in it. But there it's more like a technical academic, you know, how to approach learning leaves and taxonomy and things like that. And do y'all, which route do you think you'd go? Is more the immersion fun based or y'all doing more of the academic kind of learning? Well, I think we do both, right? Um, So we have, um, definitely we have the immersion part. And I think, um, when I think about the development of the reason why we have both is because um, we need both, right? So we have our, 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 our immersion part, which is really focused on getting people out in nature, getting them connected, because we don't have that in our daily lives anymore. Um, you know, our, our lifestyles have changed. We're as far as this community, we're more indoors. People are working in front of screens. They're not going outside as much. And so we have that part of our wanting people to just immerse themselves in nature and get connected with it. And then we also do have the academic part where we have, um, we have our school programs. And so kids will come from all over Austin and surrounding areas to do academic focused learning and on field trips. And so they'll actually learn items specifically linked to the TEKS, the Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills, you know, things that they're going to be asked on the STAR test so that they can learn about um, science and have it, you know, a hands-on and then go and apply it um, academically. But, you know, I really think the most important part is thinking about why we do the immersive part. Like, I think it's hard to make people care about the environment if they don't know about it. I would agree. Yeah. And so if they're not outside and they don't see the beauty, you know, their only experiences are like, oh my gosh, I've gone out there and I've been bitten by 10 mosquitoes. And, yeah. um, you know, I got, I got a thorn because I touched up a plant that, that I wasn't familiar with. Then that's not going to be a great experience. So we need to make sure we have some immersive experiences that provide pleasure and people can link those experiences, those pleasurable experiences to nature and want to protect it. I would agree. Yeah. I think that there's no way to get the future generations to care about, you know, the potential destruction or the destruction of the natural spaces around here, unless you get them to see it. But again, going back to my initial uh, question, which was the difference between the academic and the immersion is I find, you know, I own a school and I have for 12 years now. And uh, well, I've been teaching for 12 years now. I haven't owned school that long. But I find that when I show the kids, this is cedar 
and this is, you know, juniper truly, but this is a juniper and this bark, right, can do this. And I show them how to make a fire. You know, this sap can do this. And I show them how it like lubricates things and prevents friction and does all this stuff and can kind of be used as a glue on the skin. Like, I think that is when they go, oh, you know, because learning its leaves in the taxonomy is one thing, but I don't think it applies at that age. So I think that full on immersion thing that y'all are doing with, I believe it's called Nature's Way Preschool, mm-hmm. right? I see the kids when I go out there and I see them running around and I see them connecting in ways that I'm like, yeah, this is immersion. This is good because they're doing it on their terms and not our terms as academic scholars or professionals or instructors, you know. So I really like and value that y'all still have that big component. Yeah, and I think we will continue. I mean, one of the things that is a big motivator is that curiosity-based learning. Um, Learning is, you know, they've, they've done lots of studies that the things that motivate learning and that makes it kind of sticky is like, being driven by curiosity and interest. And so um, in Nature's Way Preschool and even even in our more academic programs like school programs, we do try to encourage the kids to like ask questions and try to answer their own questions using their own observations. And then they have people who like have more knowledge, but like let them hypothesize about why they think a certain adaptation for an animal is important. Why do they think a certain adaptation for a plant is important? Why are the why do the rocks look like this? Um, and when they can, you know, use their imaginations and try to come up with answers, I think it helps them. It helps them really get that knowledge that stays with them, um, and they can feel proud about the, proud of themselves for having that curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I do think that, like you said, that immersion in it, like being able to go and touch things and and take risks like they get to make decisions about what kind of risks they're going to take and that actually develops them you know as they grow it it provides a a background for them a foundation for them to figure out how to make decisions and sometimes in the world that we live in we we are told you know like you need to give kids two choices it's this you know it's a or it's b and you know with our philosophies we're, we're really saying like here are all the choices what choice makes sense to you? And of course, we're there to help protect and guide so that kids don't get hurt. But it is giving them an opportunity to use their own skills and abilities, their own knowledge. And I think that that, I don't know, I just think that sparks a, a lifelong learning perspective for kids who get that foundation. Yeah, I would agree. I think, um, you know, we go the route of like passion. And so uh, when I teach and instruct my staff, who work with the kids, I say, you know, it's all about your presence. And the presence is kind of like, you know, an accumulation of a bunch of different things. But passion is one of those things. And I, you know, tell the kids stories all the time. I'm always like, you know, one time I was along the Yellowstone River and I was canoeing and I saw these two golden eagles fight. And, you know, it led me to, in they're like, wow. So I think it inspires them to now have this, um, okay, next time mom and dad drag me to Yellowstone, I won't be so... Mm-hmm. Mom, you know, like, why do I have to do this? And why do I have to do that? Because I hated that. You know, when I would go on those trips as a young kid, it wasn't exciting because I didn't know how to connect out there. And um, it eventually, you know, kind of leads me to feel like when I tell these kids these stories and I see them then turn around and be like, I'm like, well, this is a possum track. And they're like, well, how do you know that? I'm like, well, I know it because they walk like this and their feet are shaped like this. And they're like, well, how do you know all this? 
I'm like, I don't know. I just really love nature. And because I love it so much, I just want to know it all. And I think that passion sparks inspiration in them. And then through that, they figure out what it is that I love in life. And then that's it. It's over. They're academically going to shine. And they might do terrible in the other areas. You know, they might never get an interest in history or whatever. other. I, I can't do, you know, trigonometry or anything like that. But I can make you a fire in under five minutes using sticks. Like, you know, there's things that I feel are real tangible to the experience as a child. And I just want the um, opportunity to exist for all kids to have that. And I think ANSC is doing that in so many different ways. And so what other programs, you, you told me you're involved in three locations. And one of them we've talked about a little bit, the ANSC, and we'll get back to it again. But there was two others that you brought up. And what were those other two others? Yeah, the other two are, uh, the, other two are uh, the Beverly S. Shetfield Education Center, um, which a lot of people know as Splash or the Splash exhibit that's right in front of Where's Barton that Springs located? Pool. Right in front of oh, Barton, Barton Springs, Springs Pool. Pool. Yeah. So it's that, um, it's a rotunda area. Like you, when you drive to Barton Springs Pool and you look at it and you go around the side to go in the pool, the upfront part with all the windows, that's actually a, uh, an exhibit. That's right. I've been in there a few times, but it's been many years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're actually going through a transition right now. We're about to do some renovations and, uh, update the exhibit. But it's all about groundwater and the aquifer and our, you know, our favorite salamanders sure. um, that are endemic to Barton Springs. And then it's also about kind of the so- social and cultural history of the springs. Um, the springs have a lot of human history there, too. So um, we do programs out of that space as well. Um, mostly it's an exhibit, but during the summer, one of our some of our adventure summer camps are run out of that space. Um, and then I also have a Camacho Activity Center, or I should say Lorraine Grandma Camacho Activity Center, which everybody shortens to Camacho. Um, and that's over by Fiesta Gardens, um, off of Robert T. Martinez Jr. Street. Um, and it is a focused on outdoor adventure. So they do a lot of biking and hiking, um, kayaking. They have an uh, ADA-compliant dock, so they're able to take people with spinal injuries and paralysis out on the water and provide, um, you know, I think, again, nature and recreational activities for people who maybe don't have easy access to it. Sure. Yeah, that's cool. And so these um, programs that you offer, what ages are they in as far as ranges? Well, yeah. So we actually offer programs starting for kids as young as three, and we, you know, go all the way up to, you know, However old, However you old you are. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And so um, Camacho specifically does a lot of senior programs. Like they do senior hiking and kayaking trips, which is um, really valuable programming where people who are, um, you know, over the age of 55 can do safe activities that get them physically active. They're mentally stimulating and they prevent social isolation. Absolutely. Um, so it provides a real value to the community. And then on top of that, they're out in nature, so they get to explore nature and appreciate it. And I think, you know, it's really, um, I've been on some of those trips, and, you know, some sometimes you have people that are, that are like new to Austin and they're joining the trip, and they're like, oh, I had no idea that we had, you know, these kinds of birds out here. Like I, yeah. I didn't know like in the middle of downtown that you're going to see so many birds and, and you're like, Oh yeah. You know, there's lots of, there's lots of, you can see a, a green heron, you know, you could see, mm-hmm. you could see, um, you know, a, a hawk and people don't think of that as seeing those things in the middle of downtown. And so 
Um, and they go other places too. They don't just stay in downtown, but they do get to get on the water right there and see uh, wildlife in an urban setting. Um, and yep. we have our yep. camps. I think those are one of the things that are really important. We have camps for kids ages um, four all the way up to um, 18 or 17 as counselors in training. Yeah, that's awesome. And with these, you said they don't always stay in downtown Austin. Where else do y'all go on these trips? Um, we visit other parks um, it might, and and uh, it can be in and around Austin. Um, so we might go to a county park or we might go to um, a state park um, and do, you know, they'll take the kayaks out and take them on a kayaking trip or take out the bikes and go on a biking trip or go hiking at other places. So really the goal is to get people engaged in, you know, activities that are in nature all throughout Central Texas. Yeah. How many people normally go on these trips with y'all? Um, it depends. I think, you know, the ones that are located, uh, he, near the site, those are, you know, they can take a, a, a huge number of people. They can take, you know, 30 people. Oh, cool. Yeah. You don't have vans and you transport them or do the people have to get them there themselves? Well, so if we're going out, you know, if we are transporting them or we're tra- transporting equipment, then it is a, a limited number. Yeah. We do have vans and, you know, trailers. And so we can take equipment and people, but so then we have it limited by the number of seats that we have in the van, which is usually, you know, depending on, um, it's usually two vans. We usually take about 24 people. That's exciting. And is it all free or are there small costs? And um, there are small costs for those programs for uh, adults. I think it's $5. Yeah. So it's a very affordable activity. Um, and really the $5 is, you know, just to cover a little bit of the cost for all the resources that we use and also make sure we hold people's spots. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's exciting that there's not just opportunities for kids uh, with the city of Austin, that there's these other things. Because that's what I've always, you know, thought is it's not just you know, one generation of the young who need to be connected to nature. It's everybody. And we, um, you know, just side note here, we have this organization called the Lumber Society, and it takes place at a bar in a coffee shop um, known as the Buzz Mill on East Riverside. Have you ever been over to the oh, Buzz yeah. Mill? Yeah. yeah. And maybe you've seen some of the little classes that we offer there at the Lumber Society, but I've been the director of that for the last few years. And it's just been amazing to see all the adults who come in and, it, we had, I'll just tell you this one side story. This guy came in, he had, he got a couple of beers, you know, he's probably, you know, just a little three beers in and he comes over and he sees us and we're making crayons out of like earth pigments and oh, wow. beeswax and all these things. And he's like, what is going on here? And we're like, well, we're, this is called nature nights and like, we're, you know, just making nature crafts and it's just something we're doing. And he's like, let me give this a try. And the whole time he's like holding this beer, he's, you know, making these crayons. And <laughs> then we have this big poster board up behind us and he's coloring and drawing. And he was like, you know, he's like, I've been to a lot of bars in my life. He's like, but I've never been to one so exciting as this. He's like, cause look at all this stuff y'all got going on. And he said, I was here last week and there was this mercantile shop and people were selling all these crafts from nature. So I just see everybody needs it. And it's like, duh, kind of concept because it's like, well, where is our evolution from? We didn't grow up in boxes. We didn't evolve mm-hmm. in boxes and cars and these planes and all this. We were in nature connecting to the, the wilderness. So it's really exciting to know that we have, uh, you know, uh, opportunities for senior citizens to continue to connect in just any age group, uh, especially with kayaks and all that stuff, because I know that's, intimidating I think for sometimes and y'all have guides who are trained and you know certified to help lead and instruct and bring an awareness to the naturalist world out there and 
Yeah, this is this is awesome, Jessica. Exactly. Yeah, and so that's the cool thing too. Like you know, um, a lot of people may want to go kayaking, but they don't have you know they don't have the space or yeah. money to own a kayak or you know, going to a kayak rental place is expensive or maybe they're like, well, I would go to a rental place, but I don't know how to do it. And I'm afraid that I'll get out on the water and I won't, you know, I won't I'll get into something that I don't know. Well, you can go to Camacho, you can go uh, sign up for one of their programs and you don't have to be 55. Um, oh, sorry. But we do, <laughs> you do, I mean, like we encourage people, that's what it's for. But like, if you really, really want to go and you know, aren't 55, if you can get a spot, they're pretty, <laughs> they're pretty popular. Um, you can go. Um, and that's our, our goal is right to like, let people have those experiences that maybe don't have all the resources. That's a wonderful thing about the Austin Parks and Recreation Department, I think, is that our goal is to make um, accessible programming for everyone. So you don't have to be someone who can like go get a fancy membership at yeah. like a kayak club mm-hmm. or um, you don't have to join a rowing team. Like you can actually do some of these things just, you know, with, with just a little bit of money or sometimes, you know, we even have free events where we offer opportunities to try it out without, um, without pay. So um, we really want people to have those experiences. I mean, I would like to talk a little bit about our camps because yeah, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the of what the story that you told about, like you know, your passion for something, and like maybe you don't know trigonometry, but like you can build a fire. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I love about summer camp because that's really where I got into the industry. Um, a lot of times people are like, oh, you know, I studied recreation um you're like you know, what does that mean yeah I didn't I didn't go to college you know, <laughs> I didn't I studied, go to college either uh, I studied I did I did go to I went to the University of Texas for theater so like, oh you didn't go to college for no, environmental education no not at all what you mean yeah and so I and I um I went for theater so like how I ended up in this was really um because while I was in school I went um and worked at a summer camp in Wimberley when uh during the summers and I had gone to that camp as a child um, because my mom was a single mom. And so she was a teacher. So she worked at the camps, and, you know, had to go to the camp. Um, and so then I went and worked there. Um, and then when I when I was time for me to look for, you know, a job, um, a full time job with benefits, I, I was like thinking about the arts and I just couldn't find anything. But I found this this um, this thing that talked about canoe repair. And so I was like, well. I've prepared canoes. I used to be the waterfront person at the at Rocky River Ranch in Wimberley, Texas. I can do this. Um, so that's how I got into the industry. And what I think about with camps is, you know, I came through having an experience as a camper and then being a camp counselor and then eventually started working in the industry. And what I love about camps that I think distinguish us, us from like that academic part of that you can, where you can, you know, do a deep dive into science academically is that there are kids who there are, there are people, not just kids, but people who learn differently, right? Yeah. All different people learn, learn in different ways. Some people are, are great at reading and absorbing that knowledge. Some people are great at like problem solving on a, you know, on a piece of paper. And then other people need that kinesthetic learning, that hands-on, they need to touch it. They need to be able to smell it. They need to be able to try it. And I think camp provides that. And you don't have to be academically perfect, right, to be successful in camp. You might just be the funny kid at camp. Like maybe you're not even really that good at building a fire, but you tell jokes. And so when you go on a camp out, 
that person has their job, right? They have their job to be funny. Or the person that does, you know, has a good eye and can spot all the animals that are out on the, you know, at the campsite. Or the person who is really good at preparing food or building the fire or putting up tents or, you know, there's all sorts of things or just playing games. And so I think that's one of the things that the camps do for, um, for young people is that they get an opportunity to be successful in something that isn't like going to be graded. They can find their place. They can, you know, show off what their talents and skills are at camp. And they also have an opportunity to learn some new skills, but without that pressure of like, you have to do it perfectly. Yeah. You know, that's exactly, I don't know, growing up, did you ever do Girl Scouts? I didn't do Girl Scouts, but I did do a lot of, um, you know, activities similarly. Similarly, Yeah. That's what I always thought the Boy Scouts was for, was what exactly what you just described. Here are this group of young men or young women who are, they don't know what their passions are in life, but earning that patch, right, Mm -hmm. for something, because I've, have you ever looked at how many patches Mm -hmm. they have? There's like 180 to 250 patches. But what I think it did was it gave kids an opportunity to take a test of something, basketry, Mm -hmm. you know, um, animal tracking, wilderness survival skills, whatever. Uh, it, but it, it also could have been musical inclined. Mm-hmm. It could have been theater inclined. They had so many patches for so many things. And I mm-hmm. think that's what the goal was, was to see how to spark an interest and a passion in something and then go, now do you want to continue on? And if sometimes it does get boring, like before this wall of books sitting next to me was here, I was like big into conspiracy theories, but I served, Mm -hmm. that served no purpose for me. So I got rid of it all. And I was like, this is actually more entertaining. And so you, you know, slowly build who you're going to become during a lifetime. But if the kids can get a taste of something that is not a screen, Mm -hmm. you know, something that is not. I don't know, I don't want to be rude and say like STEM or STEAM, you know, and all these different things that I think we're really trying to force on kids. Like it's okay to be really good at hula hooping. Mm -hmm. It's okay to be, you know, really good at um, comedy and telling Mm -hmm. jokes. And so, yeah, I agree with you. And I think um, that's wonderful to hear what you're saying is that you were giving the kids at your summer camps and your summer offering and, and probably all programs an opportunity to get into those passions and have those experience that then lead them to, I want to explore this more. Yeah. It goes back to the idea of curiosity, right? I mean, kids, kids are going to seek out. And I think really all people are going to seek out the things that they're curious about, that they're interested in, that they feel like they can do well. And so when people can try things without like pressure of being graded or evaluated, then they have an opportunity to maybe get good good at something that they weren't uh, good at before, and then they can pursue learning more about it. And I think nature is a great place for that. Um, and I will say, you know, the Nature and Science Center is one of those places. I, so this is kind of like a little tangent, but like physically, the Nature and Science Center is between the Botanical Gardens and the Zilker Preserve. Like we are physically in between them. And so the uh, Zilker Botanical Gardens is like a highly maintained space. It's very, you know, manicured. It's, it's very, um, you know, the, the landscapers are thinking about exactly what plants they put in and like how they manage everything. And then the preserve is this wild area, right? Like it's, they don't, you know, try not to touch anything. You try to leave it just like it is. So um, if something, you know, if a tree falls in the preserve, like it could stay, it will stay there, right? Yeah. Unless it's, you know, unless it's dangerous. 
So I think the thing that's so interesting about it is that the, the nature center is in the middle of town and we're in between these two places. And we are a place that people can come and explore nature and sort of a, it's not highly manicured, not totally wild, but you can dip your toe into like what is nature in a safe environment that'll let you explore and you can see what some like, what things look like when they aren't highly manicured. Yeah. Um, but without being like, oh, now I have to traverse this, you know, incline of 500 feet to get to the interesting thing. You know, we have pathways that anybody can use um, that are ADA accessible. You can look at animals. You can see a bobcat up close without, you know, <laughs> without fear. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the thing that the Nature Center does really well is it, it actually holds space for people who want to explore nature um, but maybe aren't ready to go out, you know, and do their own camp out somewhere, um, you know, completely rugged camp out, or they are ready to like, you know, they love the botanical gardens and it's beautiful. But they want to see, you know, more native environment that is less manicured because maybe they're like, Oh, I can't do that in my yard, but maybe I can do this pollinator garden that looks a little, that doesn't require as much, um, you know, maintenance. Yeah. How big is, um, ANSC, uh, acre wise? Yeah. So we're 15 acres. 15. Mm-hmm. And you'll sit right alongside the Colorado there or town lake, I guess it is. Yeah. Um, we're actually across the street. So from, uh, the strap, there's Stratford drive right. that's in between us, but yeah, we're right there. Um, if you, our entrance is on Stratford drive, but yeah, we're right by, uh, a town lake or Ladybird Lake. And the Colorado River, I guess, whichever one you call it. Yeah. Is that um, big, I guess, uh, the aquatic section of ANSC, is that, was that built or was that a part of a natural spring or was that all like man made the pond the and the stream and all yes. that? So um, it's in a reclaimed gravel pit. So when they built, um, I think it's, I might get the year wrong, but it's in the, uh, I think it was like in the 19... Uh, 68, they started working on, uh, no, I might've been later than that, but they started working on putting the, the facility over there and, um, and they built two man-made ponds and a stream that connected it. And that was, um, because it was in a gravel pit. So, you know, the part of it was to be able to show the ecology of the water yeah, because water is so important here in, in Austin. Yeah, it's a cool place. You've got, I mean, what, Aquistium, uh, which are um, horsetails. You've got uh, either Bullrush or Tule over there. There's Cattail. Um, have y'all, y'all ever seen red winged blackbirds going in there and building nests? That's their little habitat. Oh, man. I don't know. I haven't Kong seen one. Kari. I haven't, I'll have to, yeah, I'll, I'll have to look for them. Um, one of the things that we've been uh, seeing recently which i was really excited is the black-bellied whistling tree ducks yeah and yeah, so they're cuties oh yeah, sorry that was a, me <laughs> i'm really excited um that we're hoping in the near future to try to do some things to attract them because i think they're really you know they have like an interesting um call that sounds like you know a squeaky toy for a dog but they're really beautiful um and really interesting and people often think when you say tree ducks they're like what do you mean by a tree duck and you're like they're a duck that can yeah. climb trees that have like little claws uh, on the ends of their, their webbed toes. Yeah. People get weirded out when you tell them, you know, things about ant- like, like gray foxes, like, like, yeah, they climb trees and like right when they're born, they're just scurrying up trees and they're like, what? Like, yeah, they're like very cat like in a way. And it's fun to tell people different things about that. I think it sparks an interest for them to be like, 
I'm going to go research that. And there's some really weird things. I have Mark Elbrock's uh, Mammal Behavior of North America book. I don't know if you've ever stumbled into Mark Elbrock and all his world, but he's an animal skull, wildlife biologist for pumas or mountain lions. And uh, this behavioral book that he's got is just blowing my mind some of the strange things that I did not know about animals. Like um, rock squirrels will eat baby birds out of the nest because sometimes they're lacking calcium and um, deer will eat fallen fledglings that are on the ground sometimes and just it's it's such a wild world then we can never say this does this and exclusively does this because everything changes and I think that's the beauty about being a naturalist is let's say you just spent one lifetime here in Texas or even Austin well in that one lifetime everything has adapted and changed. So now, let's say you started in North Austin, you worked your way South Austin in that lifetime. Well, yeah, you got to go back North because it's probably all changed and adapted over that 80 years. Oh, for sure. So it just never ends. And I think that's the beauty, like I say, is that it's like um, being thirsty for wisdom and never being able to drink enough because yeah. it just constantly changes. So ANSC has really brought a lot of educational stuff. So if for those of y'all listening, the... Um, bird sanctuary over there. We take the staff, Nature Versity's teachers, and we go through with all our field guides and we just get to identify. So, and I love getting to be like, all right, find the screech owl in this exhibit. Cause I'm like, what? There's a bird in here? And they're so hidden yeah. and so cool to know there's a couple of them in there and they're all sneaky and um, the little roadrunner on the ground over there and the vultures. And it's just neat to get to see them so close. Like you had said, the bobcat, is that still Moxie over mm-hmm. there? She's yeah. still there, the sweetheart. I yeah. love her. <laughs> well, we've got some new yeah, tell uh, us about friends it. that are uh, joining us at the Nature Center. We recently um, just acquired two new porcupines, um, which is really exciting. Um, and uh, we are trying to find their names right now. So... Yeah. Where did they come from and how did the animals get there? Yeah. So many of our animals that are on exhibit um, are, they they were injured or imprinted. And so they weren't able, they were not releasable. And so they've come to live at the nature center. The nature center has a hundred animals, which includes our exhibit animals and our animal ambassadors. And we only have three animal keepers and we're open seven days a week. And even if we weren't open, the animals require care um, you know, 365 days a year. Like then there always has to be somebody who goes and feeds and waters and um, takes care of the animals. Um, so one of the things that we're trying to do is be really thoughtful about our exhibits um, to make sure that we have, you know, animals that can maybe also uh, work as um, ambassador animals for um, some of our programming. So that's where we may have, we have some animals that, um, that, that are not uh, imprinted or injured, but that have come from, um, someone who either, uh, found, you know, found an animal and then they were, or breeders. And so these actually came from Minnesota and they're being trained to be, um, ambassador animals because a lot of people don't get to see porcupines and we have them here. Um, unfortunately, every time I see a porcupine in Austin, it's because it's been, it's been hit by a car. Yeah. <laughs> and that's I was really, say, it's yeah. the only time you see them yeah. really. It really is, but they are here and they're such an interesting animal and yeah. they're so cool and they're, um, you know, and they're really, really neat animal. And so we wanted to make sure that there was something that we could put on exhibit that people could see, but also that we could show, um, you know, a rodent that was, you know, not just like, you know, people know about mice and rats and, and this is something that's like a large rodent that we have here in Austin. That's really cool. And, and, and so we have two porcupines. 
Um, I should do a plug that if you are interested in helping us name the porcupines, we have a male and a female, and you can go to the Friends of ANSC Instagram and suggest a name for them on one of the porcupine pictures. And on November 12th, which is going to be our fall fest at the Nature Center, um, we're going to have picked the names and we're going to announce them. Very cool. Prickly Pete. Yeah, <laughs> we've got we've got a lot of fun names for sure. Yeah, just that's awesome. Um, and the friends of the Austin, the friends of ANSC are a group that's able to like help support the Nature Center. And this is one of the things, the ways that they're helping us is by you know having helping us get the information out there about our naming contest. Yeah, I see porcupines a lot <clears throat> going a little bit east out near Spicewood. I see them all the time out there. And I was at, at Pace Bend Park a couple months ago and one of them just walked right through our camp just had no quarrels about just wandered straight into this tree and just hung out at the base of this tree and explored and i got videos of it and then it just started climbing the tree and people were like wait porcupines climb trees i'm like yeah what do you think they do like they're up there eating cambium they're basically like beavers on land in a way but they don't devour trees to the point that they fall they're just out there eating on cambium and they really like those um, gumbo malia trees a lot which is called coma i don't know if anybody's a texas master naturalist out there knows what i'm talking about but yeah they're everywhere when you get out near Spicewood and we love animal tracking at Nature University mm-hmm. so we always go see their bizarre tracks they have like little miniature basketball like imprints because oh. of the pads yeah, you know like of those course. dots yeah. on a basketball and then their nails are real long which a lot of our trackers think oh they're diggers I'm like and that's actually for climbing and shockingly enough because normally long claws badgers yeah they're diggers but porcupines are the oddity and they are in the rodent family so and they're I'm going to say this off uh, topic, but uh, they're delicious. I've eaten them a few times <laughs> in survival. <laughs> they are one of the best meats. There's not a lot of meat on them. It's like mostly the thigh and the back, but they're good. Uh, I didn't kill it. It was dead already, just so y'all know. I'm not out harming animals. Uh, we just were on a survival trip, and I was like, guys, this is a freshly killed porcupine. I was like, it fell out of a tree, and then there was another one that got hit hit on the road, but it was that morning. Oh, wow. So we used that one um, in one, and then a fallen tree in another, but they're good. <laughs> yeah, my dad said that um, porcupines are, like, he's like, you don't ever kill porcupines no. unless, um, you know, because if you're ever in a survival situation they're one of the easiest animals to trap that's right and so i i which is i had no idea i never even you know thought of that and i hope that i never have to be in that situation right um but i will say on the other end of the spectrum is that porcupines are really cute so they're, you, they're very cute they're so cute um the sounds they make oh, the yes. little snuggles they do yes yeah they're really really cute um we are getting two other baby animals, two baby reptiles that are pretty exciting. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say what they are yet, but um, I can say they will be about six inches when we get them and um, they will get much bigger. Oh, I know. Can I say what I think it is? Um, sh- sure. I think it's Texas alligator lizard. <laughs> um, that's a really good guess, but you are not correct. Oh, dang it. Do y'all have a Texas alligator lizard? Um, I think we do. Yeah, I think we still do. We, I know we have in the past, um, um, they were program animals. Yeah. Um, so they were ambassadors. So if you want to, um, tell the listeners a little bit more about ANSC. So we talked, we know you have, um, an area for mammals, Mm -hmm. right? We talked a little bit about the bird exhibit. What else do y'all have on uh, there? Yeah. So we, um, so we have, as you said, the, 
uh, the area that is this, the birds of central Texas. Um, and so that's, you know, ha- hawks and a roadrunner and vultures um, and, and owls. And then we have um, our, our aisle, which we actually do still have a lot of birds there. Um, we have some ducks and a raven um, and moxie. Um, and then in the small wonders, we have all of our sort of like small things. We have, um, we have uh, snakes, um, lizards. So we have like some rat, a rat snake. Um, lizards, we had a, a tarantula, um, because tarantulas are local. There's mm-hmm. lots of fun, cool Everywhere. tarantulas. Oh, I love tarantulas. Yeah. Um, and we have some amphibians, some turtles. Um, and, uh, we are also, we also, uh, are putting up an aviary in there. So we'll have a, s- a small aviary for some, some, uh, some bluebirds, I believe. Very cool. And we also have bats at the nature center. Yeah. And again, are these are all animals that either were imprinted or come because they were injured, right? Yeah. M- the majority of them. We do have, like I said, some animals that have come like uh, the bats came from San Antonio Zoo. Um, they, they sent them to us. And then uh, the porcupines came from Minnesota. Um, some of the animals that we're getting uh, in the near future are coming from different places that, you know, currently have um have them uh, like we're getting one from a research center that um which another aquatic animal that i that i'm not supposed to say but it's also really cool um there was a time when one lived in barton springs oh. so i don't know if you can guess that one sure um it also can be both in freshwater and salt water so that's a good clue wait is it an eel it is an eel ah, or getting it. an eel yeah, yeah. somebody and, told me a long time ago they saw one in barton and yeah, I was there like, used to be one that lived what? in Martin Springs. Yeah. And when you say, like, how big? Show me with your hands. How big it, would it oh, be? Oh, I don't know how big it was. I know that the picture that I've seen indicated that it was at least probably. Wow. I don't know. So that's that's probably. almost three feet right yeah. there. I mean, the pictures that I've seen would indicate that it had to be at least three feet. Do you think it had that classic face, too? That's like what oh, yeah. we would a picture. And so where, how did that thing get in there, you think? I think it just swam. <laughs> I think it just swam up uh, the you know, probably from the coast up the up Colorado River, and then uh, and then on to um, and then into Barton Springs. Yeah, Isn't yeah, that that's cool? that blows my mind a little bit that um, th- there is an eel in there. I mean, it was like the I don't know if you saw a couple of months back there was a like a crocodile in Town Lake too. Did you see that I did, little? I did. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know how big yeah. that one was, three feet. But people just get so spooked out by that. And when I mentioned that there was eels in Barton Springs a long time ago, I had people who were like, "I'm never swimming there again." I'm like, "Well, it's not. It's not like it's going to actively go pursue you." And think about all the people who go there every day. Yeah. They're, you know, six a.m. There's people swimming laps in that place. They're not getting viciously attacked by anything. So. No, and I don't think eels are particularly aggressive. I think they're actually pretty. Um, they're pretty calm. And, uh, you know, they, they are really interesting animals. Um, and they, the thing that they go through this really cool metamorphosis. And I think lots of people don't understand like how awesome they are and that there's a lot to learn about them, but they're, I don't think they're particularly aggressive. I think that, you know, that's one of the things that maybe just like a myth about eels. Yeah. Was the one that was in Barton, was that, um, like extracted out of there or did it just, no, my, die or. No, my understanding is that it lived there and then and then at some point it left. Yeah. yeah. How was how was it able I'm just I'm so 
curious. I'm, if you don't know the answers to this, I I'm sorry. But <laughs> you know, they, they clean it every Thursday, I believe. And do they drain that whole thing, or are they just going in there with squeegees and like wiping the steps? And I'm that, that's what I'm curious. I'm like, um, they drained it. What's happening to all the? I don't, I don't think the whole thing is completely drained. Okay. I think, um, I think you know, there is some water, but you know, that's a good question. But I know that I've seen pictures of the eel in Barton Springs, and yeah. I know that it, the I know they're really on they're on Google. And I think people have them on iNaturalist too. Yeah, so I don't know. So <clears throat> I'm like, oh, I'm so curious. And I know, um, oh goodness, I don't, I want to say her name is Heather, but I could be mistaken. She used to be the biologist who worked in the little lab there on property at ANSC. She moved to Africa and she studied elephants, but she was the Barton Springs <clears throat> salamander she, I mean, she was the head of all of it, and then she moved away. I don't know if you remember her. Don't remember her specifically, but yeah, we definitely have the um, the uh, it's the uh, Austin Salamander Conservation Center. Yeah, and they do studies of the salamanders there. Yeah, and what she told me, uh, she t- invited me so many times to go look inside there with her, and I never got a chance to actually do it. But she said there, there's just tubs like in walls and there's just salamanders because you're just bree- is that what it is it's almost like a breeding and release program um no i don't i don't well first off i don't know exactly their objectives no other than i know that they do study them um and i don't know that they're I, I don't believe that they're breeding and releasing i think that they're really actually studying them and seeing what you know what different um uh, you know water temperatures or different uh, you know, t- different things in the water might have an impact on how they, um, on their morphology and, and their, their, whether or not they're thriving. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they they do study those because they're endemic. The two salamanders are endemic and that means that they live only at Barton Springs. Right. They're only in, in our area because I guess they also live at Eliza Springs and some of the other springs, but yeah. What's what is with Eliza Springs? That's one that you can't get into as the pop, as the public because it's for research purposes. It is. They they that's where they do a lot of their research and um and that's where they monitor the salamanders. So they live in those little stepways. Do they build little ecosystems or rock put rocks in there and you know algae or does all that so just naturally? Yeah. So that so the rocks live in there and the steps were built around that spring um, years, you know, many, many years ago, people would have that as a gathering place. Um, and the, the salamanders just live under the rocks. Got it. Yeah. I was so curious if that was built intentionally for the study for like students or if it was built like as a place to gather and then they were like, wait, 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 guys, yeah. no, let's not do this. Yeah. It was built as a place to gather. And I think that it was probably, you know, because the, you know, the water always has that constant cool temperature. Oh yeah. It's so spring. It was, yeah. It was nice to, to sit around it during the winter. It feels warmer and <laughs> during the summer it feels cool. So it's like a perfect place to, for it's people to hang out. so nice. I love it. When, um, <clears throat> it all got started. Do you know, like what was the first thing that ANSC built when you said it was back in the fifties, it was a garage uh, next to deep Eddy. And then, so how did it get over there to Stratford Lane? Do you do you know the year that it got over there? Um, I, I can look. I can <laughs> no look. worries. That's okay. Um, they do have, they, it was in a garage apartment by Deep Eddie. And then there was a, uh, it was the Austin Nature Science. 
association, I think it was ANSA. Mm -hmm. Um, and they actually, uh, organized to have the, the nature center built and put over there in Zilker, but it actually, it actually kind of moved around a little bit. So it was, it, it was, um, originally in that garage apartment by D Betty and, you know, in that D Betty area. And then it was at a house, um, and then they were just seeing more and more interest in it. So they were like serving, you know, thousands of people who were taking classes and programs. And so I think they knew that it was time to invest. And so in the, in the, let's see, we just had our 50th anniversary Woo-hoo! in 2010. So yeah, I 62 think, years. Yeah. So we're at 62 years. So it's, um, it's, it's been around for quite a while. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, and if you've never been to the Austin Nature and Science Center, folks, go there and check it all out. There's so much. How many classrooms do y'all have there? Well, um, we have um, one classroom in the visitor's pavilion, and then we have the auditorium, which we also use as a classroom, which is that uh, space across the breezeway. And then we have three classrooms in the headquarters building. And then, of course, we have uh, three classrooms in our preschool. Yeah. So, so you have a lot of space. I mean, we have a lot of space, but we, you know, could always, like, we always wish we had more because there's... Is there any plan to develop more? Um, not in that space. Yeah. I think the 15 acres is really, it's, you know, it's at its capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is a vision plan happening right now for Zilker Park. And there are some discussions about, you know, potentially that strip of land that's on the other side of Stratford um, being incorporated as part of uh, the Nature Center um, to have different things out there. And I think if we were to do that, um, if that was to come out and the community supported it, I mean, you know, in a dream world, I would love to see us have a, an entrance building right there at the front. Um, but there would be a lot of things that would have to happen. It'd sure. probably be long after I was, it's you know, just retired. like keeping, uh, construction equipment and all that there right now. Right. That across from Stratford on um, near the, it's just like all tractors and pipes it, and it was, it's been cleaned out for a couple of years. Um, now they, uh, th- that was some of our maintenance, uh, one of our maintenance facilities, but they actually are c- uh, putting together another maintenance facility for Silker Park. Yeah. Um, and so, that that area has been cleaned out and so it's now just you know yeah natural well don't get me wrong i wasn't upset about it i was actually saying that because of all the dust all the animal tracks that get left in the dust back there like there's a lot of foxes and bobcats and different things and and that's my next question was have you ever had anything weird happen with like external wildlife uh taking place within like the internal wildlife there like strange things like birds coming into the cages or has Moxie ever like pulled something and you're like, where did you get that? <laughs> um, I don't know for sure, but I, I wouldn't put it past her. Yeah. Um, but what we, ha- one of the things that we had in the last year is that we had another bobcat that was sitting in a tree. Um, the animal keepers came in one morning and was sitting in a tree over not too far from where Moxie is. And so we actually had to make a decision about what to do with the site. So we had to actually keep uh the part of the site closed that day because the bobcat was just like hanging out in the tree is she fixed is moxie fixed? um i do you know that's a good question i don't know i would imagine she is it's gotta be what the interest was there right we don't know we don't know could have been a territorial dispute it could have been just it it could have been that the bobcat just got there from being in the preserve and then was like huh 
I don't know exactly what to do because it was all of a sudden kind of in a more oh, maybe. Know, built environment. Yeah, it was like closed off to the exits and it just wanted to remain there for a moment. That's yeah. a, but it never isn't, hasn't come back since. Mm-mm. No, yeah. and that's the only time I've ever heard of that happening. Um, but we do have, you know, we do have, um, we I've seen a fox on our site mm-hmm. well, a couple times um, where I've been out there where we've had evening programs and, you know, they'll they'll walk by and go about their business and you know um we've we've we definitely i saw a bunch of deer we have a family of deer that live in our meadow that i just saw the other day um we have we have owls that we see near the near the other owls we have ravens a lot of people will tell us that our raven has escaped but there are other ravens yeah. that will come and be over there um and you know i don't know i often wonder if like the animals that come are there like you know i i probably anthropomorphize them a little too much but in my mind I'm like are they bringing news of the outside world are they taunting them like you know what is what's happening um but you know we try to be really careful with those exhibits to make sure that there's nothing that can get in or you know um cause any like we don't want and we don't want other birds or other animals to get in um but yeah so we definitely see them um because we're right there on the preserve yeah, there's just always people who want, like when I had the zoo folks on, I just had that question too. I was like, what kind of chaos have you seen there? <laughs> so I just know there's certain situations where you're like, oh no. But I would imagine that those, um, you know, like the roadrunner, I bet he nabs insects and lizards and stuff through that fence all the time. You oh, know, sure. they just, because they're, they're such ninja hunters. Oh, sure. I'm sure and, he's getting lots of insects. <laughs> yeah. And, um, Weird things too. Like I don't think that a bat would necessarily fly into one of the owl things. But one time I was pulling apart an owl pellet and I found a bat skull in there. Mm-hmm. I did not know that owls were capable of taking out bats. But then it made perfect sense. I was like, oh, yeah. they're flying at night together. Yeah, this adds up. This computes. Owls so, are great hunters. You know, oh, they are such incredible hunters. So yeah. I'm sure they could probably they could probably get most anything. I love to i I love when I see nature videos where I see. Um, birds hunting that are you know those birds of prey they're just really fantastic and how they how they can do so many things um using their ability to like i mean first off just see something on the ground and just like swoop down and grab it it's amazing it is it's really impressive we got a um red shoulder hawk living in our backyard and we have the uh hispid cotton rats back here Mm -hmm. in in our tall grass fields for those of you who know what voles are they kind of occupy that niche for us here in central texas and the hawks are just eating them left and right just every day and so i don't know if you can see behind me there there's that ledge it lands right on that ledge and picks them apart and my girlfriend's always distasteful at seeing that but (laughs) it's entertaining nonetheless because i say you know it's it's just nature like it has to happen and i'm not like in awe of like oh yeah rip it up but i'm also like i am totally empathetic to both situations because like I have been hungry and eaten and what that gratitude feels like. And I've also been, you know, potentially in bear or mountain lion country and felt I'm not an apex predator here. I need to be careful. So yeah. I empathize with both sides and I try to see it from that perspective instead of just saying it's terrible and all that. And I know a lot of people here in Austin, they have that perception. It's strange. Well, you know, one of the things that when I used to, I started my career at the Nature Center um, 17 years ago, and I was an educator. I remember taking kids um, to do, you know, walks around the animals and being in the birds of prey. Sometimes they'd see, you know, some of their food out there, a mouse or, a, you know, um, a, a chick, and they'd be like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they're going to eat that. And I would be like, well, you know, remember, it's like if you were to have, 
chicken nugget. <laughs> like it's the same thing. It's yeah. just that's part of it. But they need to eat it whole for their diet, for the for the uh, calcium. They need those bones. That's important to their diet. And so it, I think it's important for people to realize that, you know, um, because I think we forget we get disconnected from yes. nature and we are so used to seeing things sort of like cleanly packaged. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's not that that is a part of it. Um, and it can be, and it can be, um, and it is, it's important to the, to the ecosystem. You know, nobody wants a ton of mice running around their house, like, right. No. And so we, we have to <laughs> remember that, right. So we have to remember that like, they are really providing a service, like snakes are providing a yeah. service, hawks, owls, all of those predators are providing a service for us, um, to make sure we keep those populations of rodents down. Um, and, and it's, and it's, you know, when you're in a good ecosystem, things are balanced Mm -hmm. and that's important for us. Yeah. It's very important. What do you think is the main like component of kids not getting outside today? Like what's the biggest barrier to you as, as an educator and a provider of environmental, you know, adventures? What, what's stopping kids from getting outside? That's a really big question. I mean, I think it's probably individualized to some degree, but, you know, I think um, myself included, you know, I get, I'm guilty of like getting entrenched with, or, you know, entranced by something that's on the screen that I'm like paying attention to, you know, like I read or, or watch something. And instead of like actively taking myself out to experience things. Mm. And so I think, um, you know, and I think also in Texas, like, um, it's hot a lot of the time. It's been especially yeah. hot this year. And, and right now the mosquitoes, we had a little bit of rain. The mosquitoes are, um, you know, really, <laughs> they're really present. And so sometimes I think it can be hard to, to think, you know, oh, I have to, I have to do all these things to prepare myself to go outside. And like I said, if it, if a person has a negative experience outside, they might think, oh, that's what, you know, those are all the things that I have to deal with um, to have, you know, a pleasurable experience. But, you know, um, I also think I think we need to be able to to help provide opportunities that feel, like I said, sort of managed and safe um, that for people who aren't used to being outside. Um, so that's why I think the Nature Center does a really good job of that. Like it does create like a, an environment that isn't so um you know, rugged or so, um, you know, wild that people are nervous mm-hmm. that they can actually try it out. Yeah, they're intimidated. Yeah. Um, and then I think there's the the aspect of like you know safety. People feel like, and I think that goes back to the intimidation, and people don't always feel safe outside. And I think that comes from a variety of different things that can come from, you know, what what nature presents, but also just like people not being as connected. And it's interesting, I was just um, reading something, um, I don't know if you've heard of this book, it's like Bowling Alone, and mm. it talks about I've how, heard of that. it's about how um, more and more communities are um, are not, there's not a lot of public hangout spaces, you know, um, like there used to be, I think before, you know, they talk about this all the time. Like once the invention of air conditioning, people could go into their house and before people sat on their porches because it was cool. And there was lots of walkable cities, you know, walkable spaces in cities because people would walk. They didn't have vehicles. They would walk. 
to the store. And so then they would interact. And so I think one of the things that we have done a lot as a society is like we go inside because it's air conditioned. We're in our cars. We're, we're not as connected with our community. And I think nature does provide that opportunity. Um, when we go outside, there's also not just the chance that we're going to interact with nature, but we also might interact with other people in our community. And I think that that, um, that has, there's value in that, right? There's value in connecting with others. And, and I think, as we become a society where people are less involved in clubs and, um, you know, like a lot of people used to like bowl together, like, you know, you're in a yeah. bowling club, yeah. a bowling league. I did bowling you, league when I was a kid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, now we, we need, we need to find ways to connect. And I think nature is a great, um, opportunity for that. Yeah, it really is. I think it's, um, I always tell the families, you know, we just got done doing the Pecan Street Festival and we did the Austin Zoo and we do all these outreach opportunities and events. And when parents come up to our booth and they see all this nature stuff like laid out on the table, like things we've made, whether it's clothes or bags, you know, they're just like, what? Like, who's this for? And I'm like, awesome parents. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, because you're an awesome parent if you feel confident in your kid going outside and having a fun time, and you're not worried because they are confident. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's who we're, and they're like, wow, okay. And I'm like, look, I got one job, man. My job is to make your kid the best version of themselves, just in case they find themselves in the worst situation possible. And, yeah. the, and they're like, where do I sign up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you want them to just, like you said, be curious. And I think that you you hit the nail on your head uh, on the head when you said the, the fear you know, you, you spoke to a few things like the chiggers, the, you know, mosquitoes, the heat, you know, potentially snakes, all, all of that. I, but I think, how do you get through fear? Like you learn about it. Mm-hmm. So like the answer is in the quest. Yeah. You got to go outside, you yeah. know, you got to experience it. And, um, I've had so many teachers who they were great teachers, but they've never done outdoor education. And they're like, oh no, you know, lizards, oh no, like bugs. And after a couple months, they're not like that anymore. So I don't, I want to, what I'm trying to say is that even as an adult, you can, you know, fix that stuff and yeah. uh, you can still connect. And <clears throat> I, I think what you said about the mosquitoes is funny because I always tell the kids, I'm like, look, there's a cost for everything in life. You know that, right? Well, the cost <laughs> to have fun and make this fire and cook your food and share experience with your friends, like is the heat and the mosquitoes and, you know, all these things. And the question is this simply, are you willing to pay those costs? And yeah. a lot of the kids are like, it's not that bad. So at y'all summer camps going back and we're just jumping all over the place here, but it's fun. Cause I love talking with people at y'all summer camps. Do you ever have parents who then are like, ah, the heat, what are you doing with the heat? How do you manage this? Yeah. Um, yes, for sure. I mean, I think parents, um, can be concerned about those things. We do try to make, um, make accommodations like for when it gets you know really intensely hot like we move our schedules around and so we just try to share that information with them I think parents can be worried about the heat they can be worried about um the mess like you know kids getting muddy or dirty and we're like this is part of the experience we try to let them know that this is part of the experience like that it is okay (laughs) and then I mean you know like there's some beneficial bacteria that can come by getting your hands in the dirt. Like there's lots of, there's lots, I mean, there's lots of information out there about how like that can actually in, improve health, you know, just by digging around in the dirt, can so get some sunshine can improve a person's like, you know, not only physical health, but mental health. And, um, 
And so we just try to, you know, like we try to let people know up front, like this is what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, your kids will get dirty. Your kids will be hot. But we also, <laughs> you know, are going to do the things that we need to teach them, like is like get in the shade. Like when you can, like go stand under a tree, go stand somewhere where there's shade. Um, you know, make sure you have a full water bottle, like make sure you're drinking enough water. Um, you know, evaporative cooling by sweating is part of what we were designed to do. Yeah, it's part like, of thermoregulation. Yeah. I don't, I mean, you know, do I love to sweat? No, it's not my favorite thing, but it, but it is important. Yeah. And so it's a way that we can teach kids, you know, like that's something that can happen where you can teach them about science, you know, like about evaporation and they're like, you know, and how it, that it can cool you down. Like that's a, that's a lesson in and of itself. So telling parents that that's part of what we're going to do. You know, this summer we did we did make accommodations for the heat because it was just oh, yeah. all summer. Oh yeah, oh I was there. Early. Yeah, I'm sure Ten were. weeks. Yeah, started <laughs> early and it just kept going. And we did make accommodations. And um, you know, we did have a parent who was like, "Man, I thought you guys were going to be outside more." And it was for a, a, a group of kids that were like four years old, and we were like, "We would love to be outside, but it's really, really hard when it's over a hundred, you know, and five degrees." And you've got, you know, little bodies that are, that, that maybe are excited and they don't know how to like, you know, slow down to. to well, and have adequate water intake yeah. too, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. all right, let's stop. We just drank five minutes ago. I know we're doing it again. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, you know, we, I think that's part of it too, is like, we have to say like, there's like, there has, you have to create these balances. And that's yeah. one of, that is something that nature does really well, right? Like it does teach you how to create more balance. Yeah. In your life, for sure, because you have again, it's that that's risk assessment. Where what risk are you going to take? What's worth it? What's what what is what can you tolerate? And then what should you not do? Like, and I think that's a really those are really valuable lessons for all people to have. And I think I think every you know human would be better if they had those opportunities to try that stuff out. And it, you know, and of course, like I do always think like with a safe, well trained person who knows what they're doing who can make sure that like you know if a person misjudges that they're there to say okay <laughs> we need to back it up or sure nope yep you can go forward you actually can do this yeah how do y'all find um the staff that work with the kids and once you find them is there external training that you provide for them um, or are you expecting a certain level of education and experience prior um we have a balance i think we have both uh you know staff that are brand new um, as a camp counselor. That's an entry level position, so you've, you're going to have people who are brand new to to being uh, you know outdoors. Um, so really, we're looking for people who are interested, right? Yeah. And then we have people who do come with with experience, um, but we actually have a pretty extensive training program um, for all of our for our high adventure programs. It's um, about two and a half weeks worth of training. And then for the programs that are less high adventure for the younger kids, it's, it's, it's two out, it's uh, two weeks of training. Yeah. So yeah, that's what we do here. It's three weeks. It's one in the summer and then two before the school year program starts. Yeah. So it's extensive, but most of them come with a background. Like they worked at, you know, West Cape preserve or they worked at some other organization leading some kind of outdoor facilities. But once they get here, boy, howdy, yeah, they get it all. Cause we're, yeah rubbing sticks together every morning and brain tanning deer skins we pull out of the trash down on Congress at Hudson's and we're doing it all. So, I mean, those like, that's like a roadkill skunk hat up there. And then that hat over, that's an Amadou mushroom hat from Romania, you know, pressed mushroom leather. 
And then, you know, there's just things that we go do. So we'll, I mean, I don't know how often you see the guests at the Austin Nature and Science Center, but we'll be there in the next few weeks because we're going for our little bird walk and our reptile study and um, plant study. Y'all's property is actually one of the only places that I've seen extensive patches of stinging nettle, the true like Eurtikas species. Um, And so we, you know, make little salves and things like that out of that. And we, I teach them how to like fold the leaves and you can eat them and different things. Oh, that's so, really interesting. Yeah. You'll have to go. I'll take you on a tour of what I know about the Austin Nature and Science Center. I would love Center. to do that. And yeah, we uh, did all kinds of things there just like as, um, we used to be this thing called a like, meetup. I don't know if you know what that is, mm-hmm. but we would just be free meetups of just outdoor skills. So we'd lead people on edible plant walks, medicinal plant walks, birding, oh, different things. Really cool. It would be like five or six people and we just, we're a group of people who wanted to be interested in birds and this, that, and the other. So yeah, we, we love that place. And I don't know if this is accurate, but I'm going to ask, did y'all um, recently launch like a new homeschool type program or has that been going on for a while? So we've actually been doing homeschool programs for um, quite a while. Um, we do it every school year. How long have you been doing things? it? I don't know why. Oh, gosh. Um, I know the forest school, the the nature's way, that's been going on. But I thought y'all just recently got into something that's like full-on homeschool. Oh, gosh. No, we've been doing it for years. Um, I I actually started my career with the city as an educator in 2005. I was like an environmental educator, entry-level position at the Nature Center. Um, And we didn't do quite as many. But um, I think probably in like by 2010... They started really doing lots of homeschool, more and more homeschool. And we've been doing them and they are really popular. Um, We have, you know, kids that that are doing homeschool programs. They get to come there and have that, you know, experience that is specific around nature and science and then also that socialization aspect. So we've been doing that for a while. Is it one day a week or two days a week or three? Um, It's actually um, it's actually not the easiest schedule. It they happen like um, in once a month. Well, twice a month, I think. Oh, so it's bi-weekly. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I'm not, I might be, uh, it's, there's part of it that's the homeschool pro- program and then there's a science club that goes with it. And then we have like a, a science fair for kids that are in homeschool at the end of the, the semester. Um, and that happens in the fall. Um, and those actually just um, went up on our, our website where you can, people can register right now. So those are, so those are available and they're like themed out for each month. And there's a couple of opportunities. Um, so like some parents, you know, if you want to come on a Tuesday, then that works. So, yeah. yeah, that's exciting. There's, um, so many homeschool programs popping up just all over the city of Austin and of course across America. But did y'all see, you know, uh, just speaking to COVID real quick here, did y'all see any massive influx in your programs or were you always able to just offer X amount of spaces and nothing increased? Cause we saw like drastic amounts of increase from people, uh, you know, getting out of public schools and coming over to homeschoolers in after COVID, you know, 2020 and 2021, 2021. Yeah. So, um, I, we, I think this year will tell us a lot, right? Because we actually were mostly closed during 20, you know, the end of 2020 and 2021 and then part of 2022. Um, when did y'all finally open back up? We fully, like this summer was when we had our, I mean, we've been open to the public. I, I, I wish I could remember the date, but it, in the spring we, we opened up 
back to the public um, after the the mask mandate was lifted. Yeah, lifted, yeah. Um, and we were open partially during that time, uh, for some of that time too. Um, but then this summer was when we went back to full programming and we had, um, preschool programs last year and we had some of the, some of the program, but we did virtual programs for yeah. schools. I remember um, some families telling me about their opportunities with y'all. I was like, well, at least they're doing something. Yeah. Right? Cause it's hard. It was really hard. Um, and so this year we're like kind of, you know, we're kind of waiting to see mm-hmm. what happens if are we back to like our normal you know programming schedule or are we still going to be making adjustments and so um this summer was looked very much like our summers in the past we there were you full. go i think parents are ready they're like yeah done. they're like we're done with this kids at home stuff yeah <laughs> just take our kids and leave yeah i think people <laughs> are really excited to have their kids back in in programming and and you know the kids really seem to um and you know be excited about being in programs i mean you know um, it was, it was a good summer. I think good. it was a h- hard summer. It was really hard because of the, because of the heat. And there were lots of, you know, things that were, that, you know, can be challenging, but it was a good summer for the kids. I think the, the staff worked really hard. They were really active and the kids, um, you know, the kids got to do a lot of really fun things. Yeah. Well, I'm so excited that, um, we're, how did you feel when it was like, all right, we're fully back open. Were you just just so excited I was I was like oh yeah because we have partner we have contracts with the city of Austin yeah and during COVID they shut everything down yeah and at first like I didn't I was like I don't understand why you would shut down an outdoor space you know it's not like I've, I've been to city parks for a long time I've never seen like millions of people gathered at a city park before (laughs) like I've seen little you know 30 40 person maybe birthday parties and things like that but when they closed the parks I didn't really understand but then it was so strange because right after they closed they asked me they were like okay what are your policies and what are you doing and I sent it to them and then they were like oh we approved this and then they let me back into the parks to do full summer camps during 2020 and they were and I was like oh but I told them, I was like, well, I've, I've never had more than eight kids and one teacher per thing anyway. So they were like, well, that's good. So we basically met all this criteria that the city put forth. But then they took it all away like a month later. And I was like, wait, nothing's changed. I don't understand. Like it's, you know, so I was really confused. But once they finally contacted me and they were like, look, we're back. You can come back. I was just so, I felt like it was Christmas. I felt like it was you know, cause we did the same thing. We did digital stuff, yeah. but it was like, uh, missions and you could, it was, it was kind of like boy scouts and girl scouts at home, but you watched videos and we did survival skills with the kids, but you can't teach a kid to carve with a knife in a video that well, like not without them hurting themselves right. and things like that. But yeah, I felt so excited and I would imagine that all outdoor teachers were like, yes, we're back. Yeah. It was a real challenge. I mean, not having any, um, you know, pathway right like yeah, before like was we, nothing. we had no idea what we were doing and I think the city did a lot of you know we we, we experienced the same like oh we're gonna do this no we're gonna pull back we're gonna do exactly and I think it was I think it was really them just trying to be as safe as possible because they knew nothing yeah. they knew you know we didn't know so yeah. much so much about COVID and um and it was really hard I think for everyone I mean I think we know that right looking back yeah, it was hard for everyone um, but trying to be as safe as possible. But I know that my, um, the staff was like, 
you know, at the heart of it, they're all programmers. They love that connection with the community. They love being able to do those programs and provide those services. So when we weren't able to do it, there was a lot of when you know like when can we when can we yeah. we're ready we're ready we're ready and you know they did great virtual stuff I think everybody a lot of people did some really cool virtual stuff but I think they were just so ready to do that hands-on um, activities because like you said it's while the virtual stuff can be really great that hands-on activity yeah. is just invaluable and so when we were ready to you know come back people were excited um, you know there's been a lot of a lot of things going on that have been challenging. Trying to hire was really challenging this year. Yeah. I don't know if you had that experience. Yeah. Big time. Um, and that was that was scary. <laughs> like that was scary. Yeah, because the kids are there, but you're like, where's the teachers? And yeah. are they going to be trained and ready to go? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I and I would say, like you know, despite all of those challenges, we had a really safe summer. We and like and you know, it and it was a tough summer with the heat. But I think um, I'm hoping that we see things normalize over the next year yeah. and that we start to get back to where we know what to expect. Um, and I think everybody would like for us to, you know, my hope is I think so many people are waiting for that moment for us to kind of settle back into knowing what to expect. But I think you're right. People are hungry to be outside. They're excited to be outside. They're excited um, to be socializing again in ways that they haven't before. And I think one of the cool things about like what, what you said is like being out in nature, you can actually socialize with people in a fairly like safe way. Like yeah. you can be outside and, and you know, you're not having to, to, um, I never stand super close to people when I'm outside anyway. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> like I'm never in somebody's personal space. Like seriously, right? You have room to yeah. spread out. Like there's all this stuff. You so people are excited. I think to do those outside things, and I think yeah. that's what our, our programs are really. You know, we're really lucky that we're not we're not just a program that's like going to be inside all day. They're going to be outside. They're going to be exploring. They're going to have lots of fresh air. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're happy to hit that again. Well, I am excited for y'all, and I want to say I did one of I can't think of what it was called. I'm going to totally mess it up here, but I think a long time ago y'all had this camp, and in one of the days of the camp, it was this thing called Blast from the Past, and mm -hmm. y'all invited Naturecity out, and we taught all the kids how to rub sticks together mm -hmm. with fire and all these things. So if y'all ever want to do that again, um, call me because oh, yeah. we, I loved it. I thought it was one of the coolest opportunities for me. Like I get to work for, I always wanted to work for y'all and I was never allowed to cause I didn't have the application, uh, of the degree and my, mm -hmm. it always got rejected, but I was like, dude, I can out science almost probably anyone here. Yeah. I was like, I'm just telling you, I've worked at this trade car and like, I wanted to have a job here, but never got it off the ground. But I love when I got my chance to do that for y'all's camp, I was so happy to show the kids how to, you know, hand drill and bow drill. And we did some bone tools and I showed them some stone tools. So if you're going to do it again, just call me and I want to come back. Yeah. It was so, totally. so much fun. I'll let all the coordinators know that you're available for that because yeah. I think that would be really fun. I keep hoping that we'll have a summer where it's not like a drought. It's I also know. not pouring down well, rain every day, like a, it, like a happy medium. It was so funny. The moment camps ended, what did we get? Rain. Just massive amounts. Yeah. I was like, of course, of course. But it made me feel good because the homeschool kids who started the next few weeks, they had those full creeks and yep. plenty of opportunity to play and all that stuff. I will. We know how to be careful for these Octobers because you know what they do in October here in Austin, the way it floods. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping it's not that bad, but yeah. 
Well, Jessica, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure hanging out and chatting with you and getting yeah. to know you a little bit more about you and what it is that you're doing for our community here in Austin as far as Nature Connection goes. And um, yeah, we're probably going to have you on again, you know, because to. we just want to keep re- revisiting what it is new and unique that's going on there because I know y'all are doing so much fun stuff and there's no way to talk about it all in an hour. So yeah, I would love to do that. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jessica. And um, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Well, thank you for having me, and I look forward to coming back. Very good. All right, everybody. Y'all take care. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.